study today as we continue our study in diving deep. Um, we're going to look at a passage that may or may not be familiar to you today in Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there in Luke 14. We're going to talk about diving deep. It's going to be a little short series that we're going to look at as, as we seek to sort of challenge ourselves to move beyond the shallowness of our faith into a greater depth of the graces and the blessings of God. There often is much more to experience, to enjoy, and to know than what we presently experience and what we presently know and what we presently enjoy. And so we're going to take a look at today as to what are the reasons that we stagnate? Why do we, why do we sit where we sit and stay where we stay instead of going on in the Lord? And what is required of us in order to make that progress? What's required of us in order to step out of the shallow and into the depths? Uh, back when I was younger, uh, quite a bit younger, I married the woman of my dreams. Uh, she's sitting right over there, and we went to uh, a friend of hers, Susan Ethel's house, and uh, they were newlyweds as well, but they had been married for a couple of more years longer than we had been married. And as we were sitting in their living room and eating dinner and then sitting back and kind of fellowshipping, uh, I began to notice that they had more stuff in their house than we did. I mean, we had not been married very long, just a couple of weeks, maybe less than a few months. And it's interesting that to me, several decades later, how much stuff we have accumulated in 35 years. You know what I'm talking about? Don't sit there and act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You've got stuff in your basement, in that little room that only spiders dwell, that you have not looked at in a long time. Am I right? I was talking to my neighbor yesterday. I had a new neighbor moving across the street from us, really a nice guy. And he's moving from across town. And he said, he was unloading some lumber. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to build some shelves in my basement so I can finally see my basement floor. That's what we do, isn't it? We, 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 we store that stuff away. And I can remember when we first got married, we literally could pack everything in our car and move. That's called traveling light. But now, a couple of decades later, it takes a semi to move everything that we have, and it takes more than a week to pack all that stuff that we sometimes don't see for weeks on end. And I'm getting to the age of my life, and I'm beginning to realize maybe I need to minimize my life instead of continue to accumulate things that we continue to put up so that we continue to not see them so that we continue to move. But I'm just, the only consolation is I don't plan on moving anytime soon. So... Um, but, and I got to thinking about that this week as I'm studying in our, for our study. When we begin the Christian journey, we kind of travel light, don't we? And uh, there's nothing more invigorating and more exciting than a newfound life in Christ. And there's nothing that we can accomplish. There's nothing that we won't give. There's nothing that we won't do or nowhere we won't go until all of a sudden we find a comfortable spot. We lower an anchor and we settle. And then the longer we're there, the more we accumulate and the more comfortable we become. And stuff begins to pile upon stuff until the Spirit of God sort of whispers in our ear through the divine revelation of God that we're not where we need to be and we need to go beyond the shallow and a little bit deeper than where we are. But we find it difficult because... We've accumulated so much stuff that then we recognize in order to move, it's going to require that I release some stuff. 
It means that I'm going to have to repent of some things that I have grown to enjoy. It means that I'm going to have to release some of the weight that is tying me to my present position so that I can move deeper into the graces of God. And we come to the place where we do what our study title is today, a cost analysis. You know what a cost analysis is? It it, it is a process by which you weigh out the cost versus the benefit of a decision. Because in every decision that we make, there's always a cost. And the reality is now that we've settled so long with where we are, I don't care how long we've been where we are, and we could be a little bit deeper than someone else, and we can justify where we are because I'm deeper than he is, and, and, and I'm deeper than they are. But, but, but as we begin to analyze this, this cost analysis, we know that there's something higher, something greater, uh, some blessing, some grace that we, we need to move deeper, but it's going to cost us something, and now we're caught trying to weigh it out. Is it worth the cost? Because to move where I presently am, to go where God wants me to be, it's going to cost me something. And you know what? I've grown comfortable where I am. I like it where I am. Even though it's not where I need to be, this is where I am. And to move from here... That's unsettling because I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what benefit is out there. I've been promised something better, but I don't have it quite yet. And so it becomes easier for me in that cost analysis to sort of be a little uncertain about the cost versus the benefit. We find in this passage in Luke 14 that there are some disciples that are doing exactly that today. Now, a disciple is not always someone who's fully committed to Jesus Christ. A disciple can be someone in Jesus' day who is sort of hunkered around Jesus and he's listening to what Jesus is saying and they're seeking to follow his teachings but they're not completely sold out. You can still follow his teachings but not really be a full-fledged Christian. Do you know that? And and I think there, there is a group of people that are following Christ And Christ is issuing to them a call to step out and step in to a deeper level of their faith. And we're going to look at that. And as we take a look at Luke 14, we're going to sort of analyze where they are and where we are and see if the same call that they're extending, that Jesus extended to them, is the same one they extended to us as we sort of understand the requirements of discipleship so that we might then reflect those standards in the lives that we choose to live for him as we follow him, as fully devoted Christ followers. So, what is required to move beyond the shallow? What is Christ requiring of them and us today to move beyond the shallow? First of all, it takes a conviction. There has to be a conviction. A conviction is simply a value, it is a belief that is non-negotiable. Now, we're not just talking about something that's superficial or something that, that someone said or the pastor said or my, my, my life group teacher said, but it, it is a conviction. It is, it is something that is anchoring my life. It is something that I believe in. It's a value that I hold that is non-negotiable. What is the conviction that is needed to move with God? Notice the text beginning with verse 25. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes the words of Jesus. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife 
and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, notice the negative, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple unless he hates his mother, his wife, his children, his brother, his sister, and even his own life. Now, before we talk about the definition of that conviction, let's look at the crowd. Because the crowd is mentioned, there were great, a great crowd was following Christ. What does that mean? There was a large number of people that were making the journey with Jesus from where he was on the road to Jerusalem. They were headed to Jerusalem to the, toward the Passover. And, and these faithful, committed Jews had the conviction that they needed to go to Jerusalem in order to, to worship God, and Jesus was going, and so they were traveling together. Now, in this great crowd that is not specified how great it is, there are a group of people that are simply just traveling along because it's safer to travel in large numbers than it is to travel alone because of thieves and other things and elements that, that might create difficulties for the journey. So they're just kind of joining the group. There are those who, uh, who have assessed in, in their, their analysis that, you know, I see and I hear what Jesus is saying, but I'm just not interested in what he's offering. And there are some who have made the analysis and they say, you know what, I, I understand there's a cost, but I see this incredible benefit of what it means to become a fully devoted follower of Christ, and I, I think I might want to be one of those. And then there are those who have already made that decision in the inner circle and a few others who have already been traveling with Jesus the whole time. So you have a myriad of, of different types of understandings and commitments to Christ in the crowd. Okay, And they're journeying to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus, notice in the text, he stops in his tracks and he turns and he addresses the people that are following him. He addresses them. He speaks to them. He is what he's doing is he's calling them to discipleship. He's calling out those that have assessed, you know, the cost versus the benefit, and have said, you know what, I I I I think I might want to become one of those. And so Jesus is issuing to them a call. Do you remember where you were when you heard that call? Because if you've never heard that call from Christ to follow him, more than likely you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and committed to him your whole heart and your whole life. For it is possible, I think, for us to follow his teachings and never to have been born again. And Jesus is asking him to step out of the crowd and become one of my disciples. You're considering it. You've analyzed. You've assessed it. Now step out. And become a Christ follower. Now, in case you're thinking about becoming a Christ follower, let me, let me tell you what it's going to cost to follow me. You've got to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, and even your own life. Now, the word hate then doesn't mean what it means today. It is the same word, but it meant something much different than it did then when Jesus used it. It simply means what Jesus is saying is that, that they are not to place anyone or anything in the priority position that rightfully belongs to God. In other words, they are to put their mother beneath their obedience to Christ. They are to put their father beneath their commitment and their devotion to Christ. They are not to put their brother or their sister ahead of the will of Christ. They are not to even put their own lives 
value their own lives more than they value their relationship with Jesus. Christ is to become the priority relationship in their life. Now, how does that work today? Well, I remember when my, uh, my parents uh, accepted the call to go to Brazil to become international missionaries, and I remember my grandparents having a discussion with my parents, even though I was about nine years old. They were not happy that my parents were taking their three grandchildren to a distant country that they more than likely would never see grow up, and they were trying to talk them out of following the call of God to missions in Brazil. There's a dilemma there, isn't there? Do I accept the call that God is giving me to go to Brazil to become missionaries? Or do I listen to my parents and love them more? See how it works? What if my child or my daughter or my parent chooses to live a lifestyle that is a sinful lifestyle that is a reproach from God? Do I tolerate that, embrace that, and acknowledge that? And, or do I take a stand for Christ? What do I do? Who do I love more? Who do I listen to more? What's the priority in my life? And so there's a myriad of decisions that we often make when we come to faith in Christ because most of us, when we first came to faith in Christ, it means that we probably more than likely are going to lose some friendships that we once had before we came to faith in Christ. Now, most of us in here were saved when we were children, and that didn't happen to us, but we know what it's like on the workplace. When we stand for Christ, we know that we're not going to be received and accepted by everyone where we work if we are Christ followers. Why? Because there is a standard that's different for us than that of the world, and they're not going to embrace us. So do we we put our relationship with Christ in the priority that he rightfully demands and deserves over anything and everyone else? Yes, because not to do that is sin. To not pay, place Christ first in my life is sin. And we all know how God feels about sin. How does he feel about sin? He hates sin. He hates sin so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for our sin. So that we can, through faith in Christ, would no longer be sinners. And so in that sense, we are to hate sin because anytime we place anyone or anything over Christ, that is sin. And we should hate it enough not to make that choice. Because if we do, notice the consequences, we will not be disciples of Christ. You'll not, you'll not be able to follow Jesus if anything or anyone is the priority in your life other than him. You can't. And that's what he's saying. That's the conviction we have to have. I love you, God. I love you, Christ. I yield to your leadership, Holy Spirit, more than anything, anyone in my life. And if you, God, if you, Christ, if your word, if your spirit leads in any way or, or, or ask anything of me that conflicts or contradicts with any other relationship other than my relationship with you, I'll submit to you over them even if it cost me my life. And for some of us, I'm convinced in this room, not too distant in the future, we may be asked to sacrifice our life for the cause of Christ. So that's the conviction. What's the consecration that's necessary? What's the requirement? It's consecration. It's devotion and dedication. Notice it says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's interesting that he says that we must be dedicated and devoted solely to him. This is somewhat of a, ne a negative focus here a little bit because he says you will not be my disciple unless you're willing to bear the cross, your own cross. Whose cross is it? Not my cross. Your own cross. And come and follow me. 
you can't be my disciple. There's a, there's a devotion here that leads to a life of death. You see, the crowd that was following Christ were going with Jesus to celebrate the Passover, but they thought Jesus was going to be coronated king when he got to Jerusalem, but in reality, he was going to be crucified on a cross. And he's saying to them, because the path, the journey that I'm on leads to a crucifixion, it will lead for, to a crucifixion for you. You see, they were well aware when they saw a criminal carrying his cross that he wasn't doing that just for fun. They knew what his ultimate destination was. They knew he was headed to a place of crucifixion where he would be nailed to a cross and where he would eventually die. And so Jesus is saying the same and making the same analogy to them. You've seen that. This is the cross. This is the journey that you're on. You're carrying your cross. And the journey that you're on is a journey in which you're not only going to die to yourself, but you're going to die to everything else this world has to offer so that I may reign supreme in your life. It is a, it is a journey of death. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, what did he say? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The, the disciple's life is the life that leads to the cross. And the cross means suffering. It means shame. It means submission. It means all of those things. And many of them are unpleasant. Some of them are pleasant, but some are not pleasant. And we do it all, why? Because of the cause of Christ under the will of the Father, led by the Spirit of God on the journey that leads to our death, a devotion that leads to death, a dedication that, 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 that we will follow Christ at any cost. Because he said, not only does it lead to death, but you must follow me. Follow in my footsteps. Be dedicated enough. You know, the life that we live for Jesus is not an easy life, is it? Is it easy? Is it? And maybe some of us find it easy because we're in the shallow. You step out of the shallow and go into the depths of the graces of God, it gets more difficult. It's more dangerous. It's deadly. You get it? It's deadly. And yet he calls us from the shallows into the depths so that we might die so that he might live in and through us. A consecration, a devotion, a dedication that leads then to a commitment. It's interesting in this text that I find that Jesus now gives them two somewhat illustrations or parables or some stories that help, some, some, that, that help easy for you to say, that helps uh, sort of clarify what he means. And, and, and I want to explain this, and, and I hope you get it because we don't have a lot of time. But, but here's what I've concluded in the two illustrations that he's giving. And I'm going to read them to you in just a minute, but... But, but bear with me in the explanation of what I want to set it up so before we read it and then make some application. These Jews that were following Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover were doing so because they were legalists. They had a religious work ethic that believed that they must do certain works in order to be righteous, in order to be saved. And they were under an incredible burden. They were under a yoke that was suppressing and pressing them down. And the religious elite were giving them no hope. There was no way in the world that they could live up to all those standards. There's no way in the world that they could obey all of those laws. There were laws upon laws upon laws upon laws, and they were being pressed down. They were beaten down. They were discouraged. They were distraught. They were defeated until Jesus came along, and that's what made him so popular. They flocked to him. Why? Jesus gave them hope. 
And now in this message, it's almost as if he yanks their hope away. Because Jesus now is putting on them a different yoke. It's not the same, but it's a different yoke. It's a yoke that leads to death and denial. And as he puts this yoke on them, I think he is sensitive to the understanding that these religious people who believe that righteousness is attained by my works and I can't work enough in order to be righteous, how in the world now can I die to myself? How can I put Jesus ahead of my, my wife and my husband and my son and my How do I make that a reality in my life? I, I, I don't see the hope in that. I, I, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you struggle with the same thing? I mean, we know what the cost of discipleship is, and we know what he's asking us to, to surrender, and yet in that cost and in that surrender, as we seek to make that a reality, we constantly battle the flesh that we described last week and this, this, this carnal nature within us that wants to take the driver's seat and to seize control, and, 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 but yet I'm supposed to die to myself, and it's not natural. So how do I make that a reality in my life? So he gives them this incredible two stories to help us understand that. And I think, I think he's being sensitive to what they're wondering, the same thing that we're wondering. For which of you, he says in verse 28, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is, has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, and what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet at a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, the two things have in common three elements in the story. One is about a worker and one is about a warrior, or one is about a builder, or one is, is, is about one who likes to battle. And so we see these two guys sort of uh, like two railroad tracks, okay? Two parts of the railroad track. And what they have in common, first of all, is I want you to notice the magnitude of the task. It's interesting to me that Jesus talks about these two guys in the magnitude of their task. You have one guy who's a builder. He doesn't want to build a, a hut. He doesn't build a shed. He doesn't even build a house, which is a noble task. He is seeking to build a tower. That's a large edifice. That's a big structure in this day and time. This is no small feat. This is no minor accomplishment. It is a huge, magnanimous task. You follow me? The other guy is, is a warrior king who wants to go to battle with a neighboring king who wants to conquer this territory. And in doing so, he realizes, I've only got 10 and he's got 20, yet he has a vision, an idea, I want to go do that. It's a huge, a magnanimous task. It's interesting that Jesus picks out two guys and talks about the magnitude of the task. And I ask myself, why is that? And I, and I got to thinking, maybe as we weigh out, you, you follow me? Maybe as you weigh out the cost versus the what? The benefit, the cost versus the benefit. Jesus is saying the greatest benefit, the greatest cause you could ever have with your life is the life of a disciple. 
The greatest thing you can do with your life is to follow Jesus. It's not to build a great business. It's not to be the richest guy on the block. It's not to have the most toys when you die so that you win in the stupid game. It is to follow Christ. That is the greatest accomplishment and the greatest achievement any man, any woman could ever have in their life. Period. And it is a grand thing to elevate that to that position to desire that. You follow that? Now let's go to that, to the management or to the measurement of that. As we seek this this grand accomplishment to follow Jesus with our lives, what's it going to cost? I mean, would it be smart to say, okay, I see this is the greatest thing that I can build in my life. Now what is it going to cost? And he wants to make sure that these disciples understand it's going to cost them everything. Let me tell you what bothers me. You go to an evangelistic meeting, or you go to some church somewhere, and they give you a five-second prayer. And you're saved. Glory to God. They baptize you, and they send you off. And they don't one time ever tell you what it's going to cost you. All you got to do is to realize Jesus died for your sins, repent of your sins, and receive Jesus. Bam, you're saved. Go for it. It sounds good to me. How about to you? That's all that's necessary to be a disciple. Is it? Is that all there is to being a disciple? Now, these people are not told what it's going to cost them. And, and, and many of these people pray this prayer and they step out in obedience and faith and begin to walk. And then they hear, oh, it's going to cost me that? Oh, you mean I got to stop that? Oh, you mean I got No, I ain't doing that. See what I'm saying? But they're saved. Are they disciples? And so they live a life of compromise and negotiation and, and, and all of that in order to just kind of keep living this shallow life and not going into the depths of what real discipleship is all about. What's it going to cost you to follow Jesus? Everything. Now, as we look at this, we go, you know, I know it cost me everything, but you know what? Uh, God, you know me, and he knows you. What's our tendency? Hold on. I'm going to hold on. I want to I let go, and I want to give him, but I want to hold on. I want to hold on to this life and the things that I've accumulated and the sins that I've enjoyed. And I want to hold on. He says, no, you got to follow me. you got to give it up. I can't give it up. My flesh wants to hold on, which we're going to go there in a couple of Sundays. And Jesus says to here, here, as you consider the cost, you don't have the resources necessary to build the tower. You don't have the resources necessary to defeat Satan and sin in your life. This guy only had 10,000. The enemy had 20,000. The enemy was greater than he was. The only way you and I can overcome an enemy that is greater than we are in the flesh and the only way that we can give the resources to God that he asks us to give our all, our everything above everyone and everything else is only with his grace can that become reality. Only through his grace. You can't discipline yourself enough, you can't do enough, you can't pray enough, you can't give enough. It's only by the grace of God can we enjoy the graciousness of the life that he's called us to to live. I can do all things, how? 
through Christ. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I think part of the frustration that most of us have is, I know what God wants and I know what he's asking, and I, but I, I just can't do it. No, you can't. Not in and of yourself. You need the supreme resources of someone who's greater than you who can give you the resources and give you the strength to resist self, Satan, and sin and the world that we live in so that we might release what he's asking us to give. And I think that's part of what he's saying here to them. You, you can't work it. You've got to trust me, and I'll show you how. Which leads us to a concentration that's required of us. There's always that other side of the coin, isn't there? Something that we must do. Interesting, he sort of wraps it up with a, a kind of an invitation here to his sermon that he gives. It's a sermonette, a lot shorter than my sermon, but it's a sermonette. I, kind of, I just want to say for sermonettes who like cigarettes, what was that? I don't know, sermonettes or Christianettes who want to get out early and smoke cigarettes anyway. Verse 33, I was back in the old days of church. Verse 33, I don't know where they came from. Verse 33. So therefore, so therefore, as a result of all that I've said, any one of you who does not renounce, what? Renounce what? Come on, church, renounce what? All. All. Does not renounce all that he has or he thinks he has or he will ever have. Cannot be my disciple. What's he saying here? He's saying to them, hey, in the whole thing, in the whole scheme of things, elevate the what? As a, what's the cost and the what? The benefit? Elevate the benefit. Elevate what you gain. Hold it high. Hold the standard high. Ele- you know, when we elevate the wrong standard, that's what we shoot for. And he's saying, disciples elevate the right standard, and the standard is Jesus, and our objective is to be like him in every way. And as we elevate that standard, as we see the benefit of what he's offering, then we begin then to analyze or to evaluate our lives in comparison to Jesus, and we come to terms with where we are and where we aren't and where we need to be. As we begin to evaluate, okay, Lord, I have, I have, I have dug up my heels in, I have lowered an anchor, and I have been here longer than I know I should be. So Lord, help me eliminate all of the stuff, all of the stuff, until, until you are Lord of all. Eliminate it all until you're Lord of all. Let me close with this. I come down 47th Street to come to church almost every time. I like to take different ways and different paths just because I don't like redundancy. Anybody like that other than me? And uh, so I come down 47th Street. I got a guy named Wink uh, Hartman. I think it's Hartman that lives on 47th Street. He has a ranch, and he's well-known in Wichita. He ran, I think, for for U.S. Senate not long ago. Uh, he, He loves exotic animals. And I get to enjoy his exotic animals coming to and from church. Uh, one, of, one of the group that I like, is he has a bunch of, of, uh, of uh, um, now nah, he's got llama, but he's also got um, um, buffalo. Didn't think of the word, it just wasn't there. 
He's got some buffalo, some bison. I love bison. I like to watch them. They're just, they're incredible creatures. And when I go down the, the big plains of Kansas, I think about the plains having millions of them. What that must have looked like uh, until we shot them all down. But anyway, uh, but he also has some camels, okay? Those are, those are weird creatures, aren't they? I don't know what God was thinking when he decided to make a camel. I mean, think about it. Uh, the dude's not only got long legs, longer than his body can handle, God had to give him a really long neck to give him balance. You know, and they kind of, you know. And if you've ever been to Israel on one of those trips, and I've been on one, riding one of those is awkward. I don't know why they used to ride those things other than they got tired of walking. It's very uncomfortable. And so he's got some camels. And the other day I was coming down 47th Street this week, and I saw a camel on the side of the fence that it should have been on, and he had his neck through the fence eating grass on the other side of the fence. This long neck. He's as close as he could get to that fence with that neck just way out there getting whatever he thought he needed to get. And I don't need to make that, that application for you, do I? Why is the grass always greener on the other side of the fence? It's no different than the grass that he was standing on. But here's what I also thought. How many people are standing on the wrong side of the fence? They're not yet Christ followers, but they're trying to stick their neck through the fence on God's side and munch on the blessings of God. Then I turned it around and I thought, how many of us are on the right side of the fence? We've placed our faith and trust in Christ, but we've got our, we've got our necks through the fence and we're still trying to munch on the things of the world. And it's no wonder why we can't move spiritually. Because we're trying to live in both worlds. I'm over here in the world, and I'm going to come over here. And on Sunday, you know, I'm here, in, I'm here in the spiritual world, and now during the week I'm over here. And we, we got this thing going on, and we're, we're just, we're just, and until we get our necks out of the fence and start feasting on the graces of the Spirit of Christ found in the Word of Christ, no wonder we're stagnant. Where are you today? The call from Christ to them and to us is the same. The discipleship. Move beyond this Old Testament work ethic thing. An evangelistic appeal to move in the graces that are found through faith in Christ. Move in and of our own resources into abundant resources found through faith in Christ doing that there's so much to gain but there's also so much to lose but where do you stand today let's pray thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services, the 
First service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.